0: All right, welcome back to the Leon Lounge. Thank you for listening. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and start by uh, just giving a little bit of a thank you to some people because I know my analytics here. Uh, I've got some listeners in Atlanta and uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and near Roswell, Georgia, Athens, Georgia. Thank you. Uh, I got one uh, near Wichita. Uh, Kansas. <clears throat> Thank you for listening. I got one near San Jose, California, it looks like. Um, uh, Ashburn, uh, which looks like Virginia. And I got someone out in Baltimore, Maryland. Oh, yeah. Probably eating some crabs. And, uh, don't, if any of you, if, uh, if I touched on any of you, I'm well, not touched you, but touched on you... Uh, feel free to reach out at uh the Leon Lounge Pod at gmail.com. Um, <clears throat> I'll be glad to get back to you and uh, just let me know what you're thinking. If you have any suggestions, some criticisms or whatever, don't hesitate to reach out. Also, you can go to uh, if you would like to, you know, like sign up for a dollar or or become a Patreon member. I have a Patreon and it's uh, the Leon Lounge. Patreon.com slash Leon Lounge. And uh, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, I really enjoy doing this. I enjoy the fact that uh, people are hearing it and uh, you know downloading it. So I uh, just want to say a big thank you. And uh, hopefully I can keep this going. Um, it's not easy, but uh, I'm going to try to do it. So on today's episode, I want to talk about Howard Hughes. Um, Howard Hughes was an American uh, inventor. And uh and, and if any of you are wondering, I am gonna have some guests back in here and we are gonna do it is gonna be more funny when I have guests. Obviously I uh you know, I do my best to make random jokes, but I'm just uh right now I, I can't get anyone. We've had some we've had some issues going on with some of my uh regular guests and they're they're busy with uh personal matters. But uh yeah, I'm gonna have some guests more in the future. So yeah, I'm gonna talk about Howard Hughes uh today. And, um, I, I've always been fascinated by Howard Hughes. Um, he is, uh, he, he's a very, he was a very eccentric man. Um, and he was very, uh, uh, he was a very wild thinker and he would think outside of the box and stuff like that. And people that people like that are uh, always fascinate me if, uh, he, he was similar to like maybe maybe like the Elon Musk of his time because he was doing a lot of airplane stuff and Elon Musk is doing a lot of space stuff. So it's it's just, you know, shifted from uh, regular airplane stuff to space things. Uh, But uh, Howard Hughes was often quoted to say, um, you know, one of his quotes was he would say, do the impossible because almost everyone has told me my ideas are merely fantasies. I don't know if he really talked like that but I know he was from Texas. He was born in Texas and uh, I think he died in Texas as well. But uh he's a very eccentric man. Um he had a lot of quirks about him. I know he had some uh OCD and things like that, which, you know, uh who doesn't? But uh <clears throat> but yeah, once again, uh thank you for listening. Thank you for those people uh, uh for the for my listeners in the state of Georgia. Um, Kansas, California, and Maryland. Uh, and I do believe I have, uh, one listener, um, in Ireland. Um, hi, thank you for listening over there, over there on the, on the Emerald Isle. Uh, I've never been to Ireland. I've always wanted to go. I'm a uh, part Irish and, um, I love, uh, I, I, I love Irish whiskey, probably my, my favorite Hard alcohol. So shout out to my listener in Ireland. I didn't forget you. I thought I was gonna forget, but I didn't forget. I think I got everybody. Alright, so Howard Robard Hughes Jr. was his full name. Okay. And he was born December twenty-fourth, nineteen oh five, and he uh passed on April 5th, 1976. Okay. He was a business magnate. In the good old U.S. of A., um, he was an investor. He was a record-setting pilot, engineer, film director, philanthropist. Okay, that's a lot of things. Known during his lifetime as one of the most influential and financially successful individuals in the world. Okay, he was very, very wealthy. He be- he first became prominent as a film producer. Okay, and uh, as an important figure, as an important figure in the aviation industry. Uh, later in life, he became known for his eccentric behavior, and he he was a recluse. He would hide away um, a lot, and uh, they they were worsened by his OCD, his obsessive compulsive disorder, and chronic pain from a near fatal pa- plane crash, and increasing deafness. Okay, so he he was uh, he could barely hear, and he and things had to be just so, uh, in. I, I I remember hearing one time about he was so he was such a germaphobe that he had a car built where all of the air that came out of the air conditioning flowed into a box in the trunk that would sterilize the air first. So it was a completely um, you know, maybe not completely but a pretty much germ-free car. And uh, you know, that's you, you got to be you got to be pretty uh pretty worried about germs to have to do something like that. But so, for his film career, um, he gained fame in Hollywood in the late 1920s, the roaring 20s, when he produced big-budget and often controversial films such as The Racket, 1928, Hell's Angels, 1930, and Scarface, 1932. Um, not to be confused with the Scarface of, uh, of the 80s starring Al Pacino. He took over the RKO Pictures film studio in 1948, and it was then one of the big five studios in Hollywood's golden age. Although the production company struggled under his control and ultimately ceased operations in 1957. Okay, well that's not good. But his interest his interest in aviation and aerospace travel, um, Hughes formed the Hughes Aircraft Company in 1932. Hiring numerous engineers, designers, and defense contractors. And he spent the rest of the 1930s and much of the 1940s setting multiple world airspeed records and building the Hughes H-1 Racer um, and the H-4 Hercules, the Spruce Goose. Okay, and they called it the Spruce Goose because it was a big wooden airplane, uh, mostly made out of spruce wood, I'm assuming. And... uh, the, the Spruce Goose was the largest flying boat. Well, it's a plane, but yeah, it was a flying boat in history and having the longest wingspan of any aircraft from the time it was built until 2019. Okay. Um, didn't know that. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. So he, he built this thing in 1947 and it had the longest wingspan of any aircraft from the time it was built until 2019, I was only like three years ago. So, he he acquired, which means bought, obviously, and expanded Trans World Airlines and later acquired Air West, renaming it Hughes Air West. So, Hugh, I wonder if he's in charge of HughesNet satellites. That's horrible internet. Hughes won the Harmon Trophy on two occasions, in 1936 and 1938. Then the Collier Trophy in nineteen thirty eight and the Congressional Gold Medal in nineteen thirty nine. All of his achievements in aviation throughout the nineteen thirties. He was inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame in nineteen seventy-three and was concluded in Flying Magazine was included, rather, in Flying Magazine's two thousand thirteen list of fifty one heroes of aviation, and he was ranked at number twenty five. And there's a lot of people in aviation, so twenty five is Pretty good. Um, I'm assuming like the Wright brothers are probably you know, pretty high up on the list, um, due, due to the fact that they were uh, claimed to be the first ever. Um, although many people attended before them and probably got a little air, you know, probably sent it pretty good, but not not a successful as the Wright brothers. All right. So during the 1960s and early 1970s. Hughes extended his financial empire. Let turn up the gain a little bit. Hughes extended his uh, financial empire to include several major businesses in Las Vegas, uh, which comprised of real estate, hotels, casinos, uh, and media outlets. Known at the time as one of the most powerful men in the state of Nevada, he is largely credited with transforming Vegas into a more refined cosmopolitan city. And you know, uh, I hate to to touch on this, but you know, when you think of Las Vegas, uh, many words come to mind. Um, Sin City, uh, debauchery, gambling, uh, you know, prostitutes, um not really uh, refined is not a refined is not a word that comes to my mind when I think of Las Vegas now maybe at this time it, it, it could have been considered a refined cosmopolitan city I don't consider it refined and in fact uh, today I don't really consider any large city known as refined maybe like Paris or something but hey uh, you know I wasn't there so he he suffered with a lot of mental and physical issues and eventually he 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 died of kidney failure in 1976 he was 70 years old um and he's his he he has many things named after him to carry on his legacy including Howard Hughes Medical Institute and the Howard Hughes Corporation okay so there's a lot of stuff that was named after him and cuz he did a lot or a um, handsome man, by the way, man. This guy was this guy was good looking. Um, little little bit of little bit little bit of a unibrow, you know. But hey, there you know, people weren't threading brows back then, so can't really hold that against him. Um, you know, and he was born he was born in a, a town called Humble, Texas. And let me tell you, that you can't get more of an American sounding town than Humble, Texas. All right, we're, you know and. Uh, And then he died in, uh, he actually, he actually died in the air, which is so fitting, so fitting for him because he loved aviation and he loved, uh, flying and he loved, uh, being in planes and stuff, I'm assuming. And he died in air. Um, and the, the story goes is that he was, uh, the, I believe one of his people who was, you know, like overseeing him or, or one of his caretakers was, they they should have just left him where he was and got him immediately to a hospital but instead i think they tried to take him on a plane and then the altitude uh the altitude of the plane contributed to his um kidney problem because it something about being high up in the air also affects your internal organs in a certain way puts maybe a little more stress on them and that ultimately led to his demise which is uh you know not really, uh, not not really the best move on their part, but also made him a legend for dying in the air. But he was en route from Mexico to Houston, Texas, which not really a very long flight. I mean, I guess it could be depending on what part of Mexico you're uh, leaving from. But when you think of a flight from Mexico to Texas, you think of like a little like a puddle jumper or something like a, like a small plane just you know hopping over that imaginary line. But yeah, his his early life. You know, he was born. He was born and named Howard Robard Hughes Jr. and he was a son of Aline Stone Gano, okay. And his father was Howard R. Hughes Sr. Obviously, Howard R. Hughes Sr. was a successful inventor and businessman from Missouri. Um. Their ancestry was a. Uh, English, Welsh, and some French. I can't pronounce this word. H U G U E N O T. Hugh, which is fitting. Huguenot. Huguenot. Answer. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong anybody because I'm wrong about a lot of things. Don't hesitate to reach out. Um he was a descendant of John Gano, the minister who allegedly baptized George Washington. Wow. Okay, it's on his mother's side. His uh, his father patented in 1909 the two cone roller bit, which allowed rotary drilling for petroleum in previously inaccessible places. Okay, so that's a big deal. Um, the the senior Hughes, Hughes Ola Howie Howie Senior, he made the shrewd and lucrative decision to commercialize the invention by leasing the bits instead of selling them smart obtained several early patents and founded the Hughes Tool Company in 1909 hmm so his dad was a, was a very uh swarthy businessman he was he was smart and he knew how to he knew how to manipulate and he knew the difference between uh just selling something and then making people pay continuously to use it which is you know, pretty good. Um not a bad trait to, to have and not a bad you know, not a bad sense to be keen on. Um Hugh Hughes uncle was a famed novelist and screenwriter and film director Rupert Hughes. Um never heard of him. But a nineteen forty one affidavit birth certificate of Hughes signed by his aunt Annette Gano Loomis. And by Estelle Bolton Sharp, the states that he was born on December. This this document states that he was born on December twenty fourth, nineteen o five, in Harris County, Texas. His certificate, however, his certificate of baptism was recorded on October seventh, nineteen o six, in the parish register of Saint John's Episcopal Church in Keokuk, 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 Keokuk Iowa. Man, we've got some wacky names for towns. Um, I'm assuming that was uh, some sort of native term, which is fine. Listed his date of birth as September 24th. Okay, so these two documents contradict each other. One says he was born in December. One says he was born in September. Um, <clears throat> same year, okay? But they, the 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 document from the baptism of the church doesn't have any reference to his place of birth I mean that I mean that just means they didn't uh, no one no one said anything to the church and didn't put probably didn't write anything down not a big deal but so at a young age Hugh showed interest in science and technology and in particular he had great engineering aptitude and he built Houston's first wireless radio transmitter transmitter at age 11 okay so think about that today so, uh, put, to put that in terms of today, um, a wireless radio transmitter at age eleven. So, in today's terms, that would be like an eleven-year-old making uh, some sort of Wi-Fi router that could like beam physical objects across the room or something. You know, like <laughs> I mean, that was kind of a big deal. And uh, he went on to be one of the first licensed ham radio operators in Houston. Okay, so um, he he had the call sign. Uh W five C Y and was originally five C Y. And then at twelve years old, he was photographed in a local newspaper and identified as the first boy in Houston to have a motorized bicycle. This is a big deal, okay? This is like someone this is like a twelve year old today making a flying car or something. Like this was like that well, I don't know about that. It would definitely just a twelve year old doing something Doing something somewhere to get them in a paper get them, get a picture in a paper and I was actually in a paper one time holding a snake, and that just that doesn't mean anything at all It was just somebody had a snake and a camera, and I was there and that 's all that really meant but he built it from parts from his father's steam engine and he he was an indifferent student and he had a liking for mathematics, nerd flying, and mechanics. He took his first flying lesson at fourteen and attended Fessenden school in Massachusetts. Okay. This was in 1921. All of this stuff was going down. I'm going to take a drink here. So, after a brief stint at the Thatcher School, Hughes attended math and aeronautical engineering courses at Cal Tech. Okay. And people still go to that school today. The red brick house where Hughes lived as a teenager at 3921 Yoakum Boulevard, Houston, still stands, and is now known as Hughes House on the grounds of the University of St. Thomas. Okay? So where he stayed at while he went to, while he studied, is still there. And that could be said about a lot of people, probably. His mother, Aline, died in March 1922 from, compl- from complications of an ectopic pregnancy and uh an ectopic pregnancy is a complication of pregnancy in which the embryo attaches outside of the uterus okay so it's not in it's uh it's just outside of the uh of the it's it's a foul ball okay it's not in the right it's not in the right spot so howard hughes senior died of a heart attack in 1924 and their deaths apparently inspired Hughes to include the establishment of a medical research laboratory in the will that he signed in nineteen twenty five at age nineteen. Howard Sr. Howard Sr.'s will had not been updated since Aline's death. Excuse me. And Hughes inherited seventy five percent of the family fortune. And this was on his nineteenth birthday. So on his on his nineteenth birthday, Hughes was declared an emancipated minor, a minor at 19, an emancipated minor, enabling him to take full control of his life. Hmm. That's interesting, because at 19, these days, you're, uh, you're considered a full adult. You're not an emancipated minor. I wonder when that came into play. But, from a young age, Hughes was a uh, Hughes was proficient and an enthusiastic golfer well um what a young successful guy isn't um seems it's golfing seems to be for a lot of people golfing just seems to be like what they end up doing I've never really uh I played golf a few times in fact I played like a few weeks ago I just it's just not my it's not my cup of tea um it's it's a lot harder than it looks. Um it's it, and it's a lot and it's a lot of uh it's a lot of uh keeping score and I don't like I don't like playing games where it's really hard to keep score. But whatever. It's people like it. A lot of my friends play. Now I love just hitting balls. I love just going to a range and just and just whoosh, just whacking balls as hard as I possibly can. That's fun to me. And seeing how far I can hit him. I like doing that. If and, but the golf isn't really that people. That's what you see, you know, when someone thinks of golf or describes golf, or like you see a little clip of it. That's whatever. It's the drive, but most of it's not that. Most of it's like trying to hit it, you know. For me, anyways, like trying to hit it out of a sand pit or like, you know, hit it off of like a like a like a raccoon's back or something, where because it lands at a weird, it went lands in weird places. But uh, he often scored near par figures, which is good. And he played the game to a two-to-three handicap during his 20s, and for a time he wanted to be a professional golfer. Okay, so he golfed so frequently with top players, and uh, including Gene Sarazen. I don't even know who that is. Never even heard of him. Uh, he he rarely played competitively, and gradually gave up his passion for the sport to pursue other interests. Well, good for him because if he had stayed on his golf career, we'd have been talking about. Howard Hughes a professional golfer who made some kind of motorized bike when he was a kid instead of Howard Hughes the aviation business magnate who revolutionized you know aeronautics and created a plane that was the largest wingspan plane until just three years ago okay so good thing he gave it up but he played golf every afternoon at LA courses including Lakeside Golf Club, Wilshire Country Club, the Bel Air Country Club and uh None of this stuff is really that interesting to me. This just sounds like uh, every other guy with some money in California. They just play golf every day. But so Hughes, um, he he hurt himself somehow in the late nineteen twenties, and his golf qu- golf career kind of uh fell off. So I mean, he quit playing, and then after his F eleven crash, he was unable to play at all. Hmm, interesting. So. Hughes was in Rice University, but he withdrew shortly after his father's death on June first, nineteen twenty five. And he married Ella Botts Rice, the daughter of David Rice and Martha Lawson Botts of Houston. Okay? And uh, you don't you don't hear I mean I've heard of Jerry Rice. You don't really hear too many people with the last name Rice and uh, she was the great niece of William Marsh Rice, for whom Rice University was named. Okay, so this guy is dating uh, a girl whose uh, family, older family, created the university in which he attended. They moved to Los Angeles together, where he hoped to make a name for himself as a filmmaker. They moved into the Ambassador Hotel, and uh, while they were staying in the Ambassador Hotel, he learned to fly a Waco okay so a Waco is not only a town in Texas where a uh, and a, a, a a bad uh, uh, atrocity happened but also a aircraft company the Waco aircraft company and it, they were located in Troy Ohio between 1920 and 1947 and produce a wide range of civilian biplanes. Okay. So it was probably like some kind of small plane. I wonder how I wonder what was going on in his brain at this time because people like this, people who who attain so much, they don't they don't think normally and you're thinking right now this is a young guy um he he's married now um and now he flies planes in his spare time and he lives in the ambassador hotel in los angeles wow but uh he had a highly he he had a highly successful business career beyond engineering and aviation and filmmaking many of his career endeavors involved varying entrepreneurial roles okay so for what we know him for is just the things that were, um, you know, popularized and talked about because it was just the the highlights, but he did many other things. Very well-rounded um, guy, which is really kind of, it seems like, and I was talking about Mark Twain in the last episode, and it seems like these two had some sort of a, of a, of a, a kin, like they're very akin to each other. Like they're just, very driven individuals. Okay, Mark Twain, not a, not an air pilot because you know planes didn't really weren't really a thing then. He was a he was a riverboat pilot, okay? And now here's Hughes who is a pilot in the sky and he's flying. And it, and it makes you wonder if there's something if there's something to that like they're both kind of like these eccentric um, very smart individuals who achieve so much at an early age. And uh, they were both captivated by travel and means of transportation. Interesting. So for for the entertainment part of his career, um, uh, a man named Ralph Graves persuaded Hughes to finance a short film called Swell Hogan in which Graves had written and would star in. Hughes produced it himself. It was a disaster. Okay, so this was like... Probably akin to uh, Tommy Wiseau's *The Room* or whatever. Maybe couldn't have been that bad. Probably not as funny. Also, after hiring a film editor to try and salvage it, he finally ordered that it be destroyed. <laughs> so, not only was it not only was it bad, it was so bad that he had the films destroyed. So his next two films, *Everybody's Acting* (1926) and then two Arabian Nights in 1927s. They they achieved financial success. They were very good movies. And um two Arabian Nights won the first Academy Award for Best Director of a Comedy Picture. I gotta try and watch this. Now then, the movie, as I spoke of before, The Racket in 1928, and the, and also the movie The Front Page, 1931, they were also nominated for Academy Awards. Wow. Um... Hughes Hughes spent $3.5 million of his own money to make the flying film Hell's Angels in 1930. Wow. Hell's Angels received one Academy Award nomination for Best Cinematography. Then he produced another hit, Scarface. And uh the so even then people were trying to uh censor the movie Scarface because it was so violent. I'm assuming that it was about um, uh, Al Capone, if I had to guess, because uh, that was his Al Capone's nickname was Scarface, due to a large disfiguring, disfiguring scar on his face. Okay. Then the movie The Outlaw premiered in 1943, and it was not released nationally until 1946. And the film featured Jane Russell, who received considerable attention from industry censors this time owing to her revealing costumes hmm so they were all they were all about they were they were on two of his movies okay and this says a lot about him this says that he's not just like some stuffy dude who you know is a uppity he was willing to push the limits he was willing to make violent films and films with you know uh, uh, revealing You know, revealing lady parts, which at this time was not very popular, I'm assuming. But, you know, nevertheless. And uh, circling back to um, the business that his father created, um, the Hughes Tool Company. Okay, so from the late 1940s to the late 1950s, the Hughes Tool Company ventured into the film industry when it obtained partial ownership of RKO companies which included RKO Pictures, RKO Studios, and a chain of movie theaters known as RKO Theaters, and a network of radio stations known as the RKO Radio Network. So, in 1948, Hughes gained control of RKO. Okay, so it it was a struggling major Hollywood studio, and he acquired 9,000... Uh, 929,000 shares of the company um, which was owned by Floyd Aldlum's Atlas Corporation and he bought these shares for $8,825,000 okay so oof this isn't good so within uh, <clears throat> within weeks of acquiring this studio how uh, Hughes fired 700 employees okay and uh, something similar to this just happened um Recently to these days, over a Zoom meeting. Um, but production dwindled to nine pictures during the first year of Hughes' control. And uh, before that, RKO averaged about 30 per year. Um, but the production was shut down for six months, during which time, Hughes ordered investigations of each employee who remained with RKO as far as their political leanings were concerned. Interesting. Only after ensuring that the stars under contract to RKO had no suspected affiliations would Hughes approve completed pictures to be sent back for reshooting. And this was true, especially true, of the women under contract to the company at that time. So, if if Hughes felt that any of his stars did not properly represent the political views of his liking... Or if a film's anti-communist politics were not sufficiently clear, he would pull the plug. Okay, So he was really pushing the anti-communist narrative at this time. And, uh, you know, you take that for what you will. In 1952, in, a, in an abortive sale to a Chicago-based group connected to the mafia with no experience in the industry, disrupted studio op- operations. Okay, so so he makes he makes a movie about he makes a movie called Scarface which is a, about Al Capone and then um he the the company that the film company he owns gets sold to a Chicago group with connections to the mafia which Al Capone was a Chicago-based mobster. Interesting. Interesting. And they had no experience in the movie industry whatsoever and uh, really dampened the operations a little bit. But So later on, in 1953, Hughes became involved with a high-profile lawsuit as part of a settlement of the United States versus Paramount Pictures, Inc. antitrust case. So as a result of the hearings, the shaky status of RKO became increasingly apparent. Apparent a steady stream of lawsuits from RKO's minority shareholders had grown to become extremely annoying to Hughes. Okay, so he had majority shares, and these were the people that had the the leftover scraps. They accused him of financial misconduct and corporate mismanagement. And since Hughes wanted to focus primarily on his aircraft manufacturing and uh, TWA holdings during the years of the Korean War from 1950 to 1953... Hughes offered to buy out all of the stockholders in order to dispense with their distractions. Hmm. Kind of a boss move, I guess. You know, you get annoying, you just buy them out and tell them to kick rocks. So by the end of 1954, Hughes gained near total control of RKO at a cost of nearly $24 million. That was a lot of money for uh, the 1950s. So he was... He was the one of the first sole owner of a major Hollywood studio since the silent film era. Okay, so he's he's taking it over. Six months later, Hughes sold the studio to the General Tire and Rubber Company for twenty five million. Okay, so he made a million bucks. Doesn't seem like a very good deal, but uh, who am I to judge? He but he retained rights to all the pictures that he personally produced which was okay that was smart and uh but all of them made by our rko so he uh he retained jane russell's contract uh, that's interesting so for hughes this was the virtual end of his 25 year involvement in the motion picture industry but however his reputation as a financial wizard emerged unscathed i mean you can't argue with that i mean the dude's doing well so during that time period. RKO became known as the home of classic film noir productions. Ooh, I love noir. That's good stuff. Thanks in part to the limited budgets required to make such films during Hughes's tenure, Hughes reportedly walked away from RKO having made $6.5 million in personal profit. And uh, according to a man named Noah Dietrich, Hughes made a $10 million profit from the sale of the theater's and made a profit of one million from his seven-year ownership of RKO. So, the dude made like, you know, eighteen million dollars from this whole uh, ordeal. But, I mean, that that's just what is. Uh, that's just according to this Noah Dietrich guy, I and mean, I don't even know who this guy is. So, this dude, um, you know, he uh, he could just be saying this stuff. I don't even know. But according to Noah Dietrich, um Hughes had a lot of uh he had a lot of real estate as well. And what, you know, a wealthy businessman doesn't um that seems to be always the move um just to acquire as much uh, real estate as possible. So according to to Noah, um land, land became a principal asset for the Hughes empire, okay? So Oh, uh, Howie, Howie Hughes acquired 1,200 acres in Culver City, California for Hughes' aircraft. He bought seven sections. Seven sections will be 4,480 acres in Tucson for his Falcon Missile plant. And he also purchased 25,000 acres near Las Vegas. That's a lot of uh, land. 25,000 acres is... Um, that, that's a, r- a really big piece of land. But in 1968, the Hughes Tool Company purchased the North Las Vegas Air Terminal. So this guy's buying whole, whole ass airports, basically. Originally known as the Summa Corporation, the Howard Hughes Corporation formed in 1972 when the oil tools business of Hughes Tool Company then owned by Howard Hughes Jr. floated on the New York Stock Exchange under the Hughes Tool name. This forced the remaining businesses in the original Hughes tool to adopt a new corporate name, Summa. The name Summa, Latin for highest. It okay, was adopted without the approval of Hughes himself, who preferred to keep his own name on the business and suggested HRH properties, okay so for, for Hughes resorts and hotels and there's uh, HRH is also his initials and that seems to be a that seems to be a trend for these guys like they these 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 uh, men and and also women who attain such high status and they own things they're just obs- they're, they seem to become obsessed with their name like they just want their name on everything They want their name on buildings they want their name on the sides of airplanes they want to see their name you know on billboards they want every business to be have their own name and it's like and at the end of the day, it really makes no, it It really doesn't matter because people are going to know it's yours in the end, I guess. But maybe at the time that was a big deal because, you know, it wasn't like the information age or, you know, and if, if you didn't, if you back then, if you didn't see the name of something, I guess you, you had no idea who owned it. So I guess that makes sense for the time, but eh, it's just a weird thing. And it, and it, and it still goes on to this day. Um, he he ex- Hughes extended his financial empire to include Las Vegas real estate and hotels, media outlets, spending an estimated three hundred million, and using his considerable powers to take over many of the well-known hotels. And he was uh, especially he took over especially the venues connected with organized crime. Okay, so he quickly became one of the most powerful men in Las Vegas. And uh, he was instrumental in changing the image of Las Vegas from its wild west roots to a more refined cosmopolitan city, as I stated before. In addition to the Desert Inn, Hughes would eventually own the Sands, Frontier, Silver Slipper, Castaways, Landmark, and Herald's Club in Reno, Nevada. And uh, he would eventually become the largest employer in Nevada. So this guy was all about... Nevada at this time he uh he was just so uh, it seemed like he was just obsessed with um it seemed like he was he became obsessed with hotels at this time and that's the thing that's the thing about these type of guys like they they don't really have they they it seems like on paper they're doing so much like looking back on it and talking about it, it's like oh man this guy was in this he was in that he was in aviation engineering uh, real estate uh oil field but really what's really happening is, is these guys they are spending like maybe three to five years and they focus on one single thing. So like at this time he's solely focused on obtaining hotels and obtaining real estate in Nevada. And, and you know, when he's focused on the movie industry, he's solely focused on the movie industry. And it's like, and then they move on to the next thing. Then he moves on to the next thing. And that's, and I think that's a big, I think that's a big proponent for some of these really, uh, You know, wealthy and smart guys like, you know, like Elon Musk, same kind of thing. Like, it seems like he's he's just got so many things in his pocket. But at the same time, it's like when he invented PayPal or co-invented PayPal or whatever, he was probably solely focused on PayPal. Then he moved on to Tesla and he was solely focused on Tesla. And let me tell you, I'm really kicking myself now because I heard about Tesla's in like uh, like, uh, uh, 2010 or something. It, whenever it, I, I i heard them maybe it was 2012 or so i heard something about a tesla electric vehicle and at that time everybody was like yeah whatever electric vehicle is never gonna be a thing and uh oh, boy am i kicking myself now and uh that was dumb i should have invested but whatever uh but you know so at this point he's he's a real estate a mogul in nevada in las vegas and reno but now he's moving, he's moved on to, to, re, to, uh, aviation and aerospace. Okay. So he, his, uh, so now he's got, he's, he's got aviation, airlines, aerospace, and defense industries, a long, a lifelong aircraft enthusiast and a pilot. He survived four airplane accidents. And, uh, one of them was during the filming of the movie that he produced Hell's Angels. And, uh, one of them, he was, and he was also setting the airspeed record in the Hughes Racer. And, uh, uh, and another one at Lake Mead in 1943. And then a near fatal crash of one of his Hughes XF-11s in 1946. Okay. So this guy has cheated death, like, many times by now. And crashing in planes. And, uh, I don't know if you're aware, but normally, uh, plane crashes, uh, they don't, they don't end well. But, uh. At Rogers Airport in Los Angeles in Los Angeles, Los Angeles, Los Angeles, he learned to fly from pioneer aviators, including Moy Stevens and JB Alexander. He set many world records and accomplished, and commissioned the construction of custom aircraft for himself while heading Hughes aircraft at the airport in Glendale, California. So operating out of Glendale, the most technologically important aircraft he commissioned was a Hughes H 1 racer. Um, and this was uh, September 1935. Hughes was flying the H 1 himself, and he set the land plane airspeed record at 352 miles per hour over his tests near uh, Santa Ana, California. Wow and he reached 362 miles per hour and the last time in history that an aircraft built by a private individual set the world airspeed record. Wow. Dang. So he, he said it and it hasn't happened since. A year and a half later, on January 19th, 1937, he was flying the same H-1 racer fitted with longer wings. He set a new transcontinental airspeed record by flying nonstop from Los Angeles to Newark, I'm assuming that's Newark, New Jersey, in 7 hours, 28 minutes, and 25 seconds. Beating his own record of 9 hours and 27 minutes. His average ground speed over the flight was 322 miles per hour. Hmm. Big deal at the time. Planes go much faster now, but, well, you know, that was a big deal at the time. So, this, this H1 this H1 racer it had a number of design innovations okay and it had retractable landing gear and it had uh it was it it was all rivets and uh joints were set flush onto the body of the aircraft to reduce drag so it was like this is when they're realizing that the plane's got to be like completely smooth on the outside like there can't be anything hanging off or any like you know bolts little bolts sticking out because they'll catch it they'll catch air and uh slow you down so he uh these planes influenced the design of a lot of world war ii fighters such as the mitsubishi a6m0 the <laughs> the focke wolf fw 190 and the f8f bearcat um but this has not been reliably confirmed this is just kind of like a rumor but uh you know, 1975, his H1 racer was donated to the Smithsonian Museum, where I'm assuming it is still there today. And you can go see it. Um, so that's cool. So also, he uh, he did a, uh, a flight around the world in 91 hours. So he flew around the entire world in three days and 19 hours and 17 minutes. Do the minutes really matter at this point? I think they're just splitting hairs here. But he he was beating the previous record of 186 hours, which is 7 days, 18 hours, and 49 minutes. Wow. That was set in 1933 by a man named Wiley Post in a single-engine Lockheed Vega. Damn, he beat it by 4 days. That's interesting. Uh, Hughes returned home ahead of photographs of his flight. He was taken off from New York City. And he continued to Paris, Moscow, Omsk, Yakutsk, Fairbanks, and Minneapolis. And then returning to New York City for this flight. He flew a Lockheed 14 Super Electra. It was a twin-engine transport with four-man crew. Uh, and it was fitted with the latest radio and uh, navigational equipment. And uh, a man named Harry Connor was his co-pilot. Uh, Hughes wanted the flight to be a triumph of American aviation technology, and uh, he was trying to illustrate that safe long-distance air travel was indeed possible. And uh, I think he, uh, I think he achieved that. Hughes had uh, previously been obscure, despite his wealth, being known for he was dating Katherine Hepburn. Ooh. New York City now gave him a. Ticker tape parade in the Canyon of Heroes. I have no idea what that is, but interesting nonetheless. They this is when him and his whole crew. This is when they were awarded their uh, Collier Trophy for flying around the world in record time. And uh, like I said before, he he got a lot of uh, trophies and awards and and things like that. Man, so they renamed they renamed a lot of. Places after him, they renamed an airport in Houston after him. And uh, but it was uh, they people were outraged due due to it being named after a living person, so they wanted it changed back to William P. Hobby Airport. Hughes had a big role in designing both of the Boeing three hundred seven Stratoliner and Lockheed L 49 Constellation. And a lot of this stuff is just kind of like, at this point, at this point, this is just semantics. Okay, you know, like, uh, this is like, uh, at this point in time, this is like rubbing it in, kind of. It's like, all right, you know, we get it. The dude was, uh, he was an aviation genius, and he won all these awards, and he owned all these things. But, interesting nonetheless, um, interesting nonetheless. So as I stated before, Hughes had a uh, he had a very eccentric personality, and he had uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. This uh, Noah Dietrich guy he he wrote that uh, Hughes always ate the same thing for dinner, and it was a New York strip steak cooked medium rare, a dinner salad, and peas. But he only ate the smaller peas. Okay, which you know sounds like a pretty good dinner. Not a bad diet, I'm I'm guessing. So uh, and he would push the larger ones aside. Interesting. For breakfast, Hughes wanted his eggs cooked the way his family cook. Lily made them every single time. So he had a phobia about germs, as I stated before, and uh, he had a passion for secrecy, which eventually turned into a full-on mania. So the guy was uh, the guy was getting increasingly more um, eccentric and more. Uh, more uh, ex- he was getting more crazy with the way he was doing things, and that became apparent to the people around him. And I I've heard that he would also like for his cooks and like servants and stuff, not servants but you know, cooks and maids or whatever. He would like write out detailed step by step instructions for how they should present things to him, like how they should cut his fruit and how they should serve him, you know, his uh, drinks and and you know. Let's be honest. They were probably uh, spitting at a lot of his stuff. Maybe for I don't know. But uh, he was um, he was while he was directing the, his movie, The Outlaw. He, was, he became he became fixated on just a very small flaw in one of Jane Russell's blouses, one of her one of her shirt tops, and he he was claiming that it was bunched up along a seam. And it gave the appearance of two nipples on each breast. Okay, so he he was obsessed with it, and he wrote a detailed memorandum to the crew on how to fix the problem. Like I said, he would write out these intricate, detailed uh, instructions on how to do certain things. But um, he he uh, this guy Richard Fleischer who directed um. His kind of woman with Hughes as an as an executive producer. So Hughes was a, an executive producer on this movie that Robert Fleischer directed. And he wrote at length in his autobiography about the difficulty of dealing with Hughes. And in his book, his book is titled Just Tell Me When to Cry. Fleischer explained that Hughes was fixated. He was fixated on trivial details and was alternately indecisive and obstinate. He also revealed that Hughes' unpredictable mood swings made him wonder if the film would ever be completed. So one time, Hughes told his aides that he wanted to screen some movies at a film studio near his home. He stayed in the studio's darkened screening room for more than four months, never leaving. Whoa. And he only ate chocolate bars and chicken and drank only milk. And he was surrounded by dozens of Kleenex tissues that he continuously Stacked and rearranged, and he wrote detailed memos to his aides, giving them explicit instructions: neither to look at him nor speak to him unless spoken to. Throughout this period, Hughes sat fixated in his chair, often naked, continuously watching movies. Whoa, that kind of sounds like me, to be honest with you, man. I ain't gonna, I ain't even gonna lie. Like I just, when I, I love to be watching movies. And I don't like people uh, talking during them. And I do like to be left alone most of the time. So, interesting. Uh, you know, he finally emerged in the summer of 1958. And his hygiene was terrible. He had neither bathed nor cut his hair or nails for weeks. He had a condition uh, called allodynia and it's a condition in which pain is caused by a stimulus that is not normally elicit pain. Like, a, you know, like a sunburn can cause it. But touching unsunburned skin or running cold or warm water over it can be very painful. So that's what he was dealing with. He was like if you would just kind of, maybe you just uh, poke him a little bit, you know, with a, a little soft part of your back of your hand, you know, it, it would uh, hurt him. Hmm. Interesting. After the whole after the whole screening room uh incident, and I wouldn't really call it an incident, it was more like a whole era of his life. It was like four months he was in there. He moved into a bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel, where he rented rooms for his aides, his wife, and numerous girlfriends. He would sit naked in his bedroom with a pink hotel napkin placed over his uh his gins, over his genitals. So and he would sit there naked watching movies, and it was this was probably because um he he found that wearing clothes was painful due to his uh, allodynia, and I'm thinking he may have had something else going on with him, but you know, be that as it may. He watched the movie to distract himself from his pain. well, don't we all? A common practice among patients with uh, intractable pain, especially those who do not receive adequate treatment. Hmm. Huh. Maybe that's why so many people uh are obsessed with 4-hour long Marvel movies because you know, you're trying to forget about something or not focus on the pain. But uh, you know, in one year, Hugh spent an estimated 11 million dollars at this Beverly Hills bungalow. That's a lot of money. So he began purchasing restaurant chains, four-star hotels, and uh, all founded within the state of Texas. This included, if for only a short period, many unknown franchises currently out of business. So he placed the ownership of the restaurants with the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, and all licenses were resold shortly after. Hmm. In 1930, in 19, rather, in 1968, Hughes became obsessed with the film Ice Station Zebra and had it run on a continuous loop in his home. It's kind of like me with uh, The Sopranos or Seinfeld. According to his aides, he watched it 150 times. Feeling guilty about the commercial critical and rumored toxicity of his film The Conqueror, he bought every copy of the film for $12 million watching the film on repeat. Paramount Pictures acquired the rights of the film in 1979 three years after his death wow so this guy was wild man this guy was uh highly eccentric i'm gonna i'm gonna wrap this one up because i'm about i'm at about one hour here probably a little short shorter after editing but um i'm gonna continue on but if you want to hear the rest of it where i get a little more i'll be a little more um uh i'll, I'll be a little more affable and make a lot more jokes and uh be a little crazier with the things that I say and looser with the things I say on the Patreon. So I'm going to continue on for about 20, 20 minutes or so. So if you're interested, you can sign up for the Patreon. I think I have... Uh, so I have two tiers on my Patreon. The first tier is just like a donation. It's just like a buck. And you can you can, you can can sign up, do a buck, and then unsign up. No big deal. It, it doesn't matter to me or whatever. Um, now, if you want to... Uh, if you want to sign up for the $3 patreon you'll get this and uh other stuff and you can uh, message me directly from there and uh you know if you're interested in maybe being a guest or doing like some sort of like a zoom call thing or a telephone call thing or just you know just if you want to post your number i'll set aside a time and we'll figure out a time and i could just call you and i'll record it and put it on the podcast maybe but uh you know just keep that in mind but that's where this one is going to That's where this one's going to stop off, okay, guys? So thanks for listening. Thanks for being a, a regular listener of the Leon Lounge. And stay smooth.